Welcome back to our continued tour of the brain's attention system. What I'd like to move on to now is the second topic for our time together, which has to do with why our attention fails us. And it certainly does. I know all of us have experienced that sense of sort of distracted haziness in our lives. We might go entire days where it kind of feels like our attention system is just not cooperating. And I know everybody's had this experience of opening up a book, reading it wonderfully, but then at some point getting to the bottom of the page and having no idea what you just read, right? Very common experience. And you might say to yourself, how is this possible? I know my eyes were moving. I know they scanned the pages, but nothing sort of got in, nothing registered. It's as if my perception sort of failed me and definitely my comprehension failed me. Part of this is tied to what we talked about in the last section which is that yes, our attention and our perception are very strongly yoked. And wherever it is that we pay attention and in, to whatever it is that we pay attention can bias the way the brain processes information. But that's what I wanna talk about now. I wanna really talk about what it is that causes attention to fail. Now, one very obvious example is distraction in the external environment. And that might even be more controllable at some level, right? You might say, okay, maybe I won't keep every tab on my computer open. Maybe I will turn off my uh, text messages while I try to do some work or turn off the TV while I'm trying to read or whatever it is, right? We can actually try our best to control the external environment and we can be somewhat successful at that. But what do we do when the distraction, again, isn't coming from an external source, but is coming from within? And that's what I wanna talk about next. As I had mentioned earlier, that concept of internal distractibility is something we call mind wandering. Again, the technical definition of mind wandering is having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. You know, oftentimes when I talk about mind wandering, I get a little bit of pushback from people. They'll say, no, 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 I love mind wandering. I love it. It makes me feel good. Like I can just let my mind go wherever it wants to go. I would say, yes, that's great. That's not what I'm talking about, right? We might call that daydreaming, for example, or in psychology speak, we call that, psychologists love to do this. They call it um, constructive internal reflection. Now, what does that actually mean? What that means is that Unlike mind-wandering, the way that I've, I've described it, letting your mind produce the thoughts, generate the thoughts, and let those thoughts go wherever they will is what this constructive internal reflection is. And it's actually very beneficial, okay? And the reason it can be beneficial is because you're not trying to do anything else at the same time. There's no other task. The task is to allow your mind to freely flow. So you could say going through the walk, going for a walk in the park or staring at an ocean or a sunset view, beautiful time to have these sort of open-ended moments. Very generative. They result in sort of better problem solving, better mood, um, really positive visioning for the future, good stuff to do. And we'll talk about how we may want to actually introduce more moments of that kind of untethered attention where there is nothing for us to suck our attention on, stick our attention on maybe. Anyway, that's not mind wandering, okay? So the difference is the mind's capacity to have what we call spontaneous thought, this sort of bubbling up of random content is something it just does. 
when it does that in the context of having to do something else, it's actually quite problematic. As I just said a moment ago, when it does that in the context of not having to do something else, it can be wonderful and very helpful. So let's talk about the problem case, right? What we called mind wandering. Mind wandering, as we talked about in the, in the last uh, module, really can be problematic for the brain's perceptual responses. As I mentioned, it actually dulls this gap. It diminishes this gap of attention. And it does something we call perceptual decoupling. Again, a technical term, but it really is what it sounds like. Your perception and your attention are decoupled. That's actually what happens when we get to that bottom of the page and have no idea what's going on. Our eyes were moving, sensory information was getting in, but our attention was so hijacked away that it wasn't able to process any of that to the point of having real conscious comprehension of what occurred. So perceptual decoupling can be very bad for us if we're trying to learn or listen or have a conversation with somebody, right? We're just, if we're not there, it's not going to go so well for us or our conversation partner. But unfortunately, that's not the only bad news with mind wandering. As you can imagine, we don't perform as well on our tasks at hand when our attention is mind wandering away. We actually make way more errors, significantly more errors, if we're mind wandering during a task. And our responses tend to be much more variable or erratic. It's like we're not fully engaging in it. We're, we're there and then we're not there. We're there and then we're not there, so to speak. You might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, I'm mostly able to do things okay, so it must be fine. And I would say, that's great. <laughs> it's great if we can get by and there's no costs, no dire consequences to our mind wandering. But we all know times when it has cost us to not fully be present. And it might not even be something sort of professionally related. I know I can speak for myself. You know, there are times when I want to witness something my child is doing, a dance recital or a soccer game. And even though I want to be there, my mind is just not. I'm not able to have it focus on the thing that I know matters the most in that moment. So I just do want to bring that up, that there are consequences to mind wandering that are a nuisance, but they can also kind of steal away moments of real joy in our lives. So I think there's plenty to say regarding why we'd want to take some time and energy to cultivate the capacity to know if our mind is wandering and to do something about it so it's not wandering away when we want it to actually be present to what's occurring. There's one other aspect of mind wandering that I think is really important to, for you to know, which is that it happens all the time. In fact, it happens about 50% of our waking moments. Think about that, right? This entire series with me is about an hour long. You, you're gonna be gone for about 30 of it, 30 minutes, you're not there. Now, you still, just like reading the book, may be watching the screen or listening to my voice, but you've probably made a couple of already micro excursions away, right? Whether it's a thought you've had based on what I've said or something in your environment distracted you away or, you thought something was very interesting, so you kind of went down a rabbit hole with it. These are actually all sometimes productive, sometimes unproductive ways we can really move our attention away from the task at hand. This is all what we would put in the larger category of mind wandering. So it happens all the time. And this is actually very important for you to know because you might say to yourself, okay, I got it, Amisha. You, you're telling me that it's not good for my ability to pay attention to mind wander. I make mistakes. I'm going to be more variable. Um, I should just not do it. So I'm just going to commit. I'm no longer going to mind wander. 
And I'd say, great, good on you, you know, make that commitment. But unfortunately, I don't think it's going to work out because there's such a strong tendency of mind to wander. And in some sense, our brain is built to wander. That simply guiding yourself and telling yourself this is something you're going to kind of intention is not going to be sufficient, which is exactly why we need to figure out a different way. And that way, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, that we found in my laboratory to be most successful to manage mind wandering is mindfulness training. So I think you've now kind of gotten the, the, the gist of it. Mind wandering happens often. It has uh, consequences for our performance and the way in which we perform. It has consequences for our perception. But there's one other thing that mind wandering also does, which is unfortunately a bad news story. And one seminal paper that actually described this phenomenon uh, gives it away. The title of the paper is A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And this was a study done by some colleagues at Harvard almost a decade ago now, in which, in which they found that when people report mind wandering, and they, all they did was give people on their cell phones little pings, messages that asked them, what are you doing right now? What's the task at hand? Where is your attention? Right? And half the time they weren't paying attention to the task at hand. And then they asked the question, what's your mood? You know, and they sort of had to decide on a negative positive scale what their mood was. And what these researchers found and what people have found sort of over and over again is that a consequence of mind wandering, regardless of the particular episode or content of the mind wandering, is that in the next moment, you're likely to have more of a negative mood. All right. So whether you're mind wandering about a wonderful vacation you want to have or your worst fear, the next moment is likely to have a little bit of a negative tinge to it. So this, again, is showing you this very potent relationship between our attention and our emotion. And I think that the very important thing to keep in mind regarding mind wandering is that it happens more when we are stressed and overloaded. So the 50% number is likely to go up under high stress intervals. Remember again, high stress intervals typically mean we've got to take action. We've got to do something. The demands are more. So we're, we are once again in a catch-22 situation where we need all of our attention and less and less is available to us to use to succeed in the moment. So now we have a little bit of a puzzle, right? We know that attention is powerful. We can focus it. We know that mind wandering happens a lot. And we know that under stress, attention is diminished and mind wandering increases. How, how does this all fit together as it relates to this broader topic we're talking about, which is that our attention often fails us and we want to understand why. Well, again, as happens with the brain, you know, sometimes the most beneficial aspects of our brain function can also be seeds for catastrophe for our brain function. That's true here as well. And the specific brain function I'm talking about now is the mind's ability to time travel. Okay. So the human brain, people always say, oh, won't it be great one day when we can have a time traveling machine? Well, we actually already do. We carry it around with us wherever we want. Uh, wherever we go, we've got it in our mind. This capacity to time travel, and by the way, I want to say it's not just time travel. It's mind travel as well. We can travel. We can relive, re-experience past events. We can envision future events. And we can actually insert our own mind into the perceived mind of another. So it's both time traveling and mind traveling. 
And this is this beautiful and powerful capacity of the brain to simulate an entire virtual reality, right? Nothing of those exists. The past does not exist in this moment. The future does not exist in this moment. We aren't really in anybody's mind. It's all a simulation that the mind can actually create. And this is what makes us, in many ways, uniquely human. This capacity, we don't know of many other, um, we don't know of actually any other species that can do this and be aware that it's doing it. So this simulation mode, if you will, of what the mind can do is very powerful. And let's just take the time traveling example, for, for instance, as it relates to attention, mind wandering, and stress. So a metaphor to use for this that I think will be handy is something like an MP3 player, right? And I already used some of these terms. Under normal circumstances, when, when we want to be productive with the use of our mind, we might rewind the mind. We might think about past events productively, meaning that we reflect on what worked, what didn't work. Uh, we can actually reminisce about powerful and beneficial experiences that we've had. It's all good stuff to bring up in the mind and can actually promote our health, well-being, and performance success. We can also do the same thing if we think about this sort of MP3 player metaphor by fast-forwarding. We can fast-forward to the future and productively plan, uh, consider different options, um, think about other people's perspectives on things in the future, for example, envision all kinds of possible circumstances, very powerful, beneficial. It, again, is what gives us our ability to function as humans are uniquely capable of doing. But under high-stress circumstances, those functions of rewind and fast-forward can not only go into overdrive, but the content that they choose to or are driven to focus on can be quite damaging. So what we know is that under high stress, when we rewind the mind, and it goes back to something I was talking about um, in a few, a few videos ago regarding depression, when we rewind the mind under high stress, we may tend to catastrophize, um, actually more likely ruminate because the event has already occurred, right? The event has occurred and we're rewinding to just reflect on it. It might even get us into kind of a ruminative loop sometimes something I call a loop of doom, where we're just kind of spinning on the same content over and over again. Sometimes we refer to this as attentional rubbernecking. And it's very similar to kind of when you're in a car, if you've ever unfortunately seen a, a you know, traffic accident happen, traffic will slow. And it's not because there's even a reason for it, but people kind of slow down and they kind of tweak their heads to look back at what might have occurred. That rubbernecking aspect doesn't have to be toward events in the environment. They can be to events that have occurred to us already. So rumination would be a very unproductive, unfortunate consequence of rewinding the mind, kind of amped up as a function of high stress intervals that people experience. Or under high stress, we may fast forward, but not to productively plan. But now the catastrophe is a worry we have about the future, all the imagined scenarios, all the gloom and doom scenarios that not only have not happened yet, they're in the future, but they may never happen. So we are using a lot of our mental resources, our cognitive capacity to actually do this mental time traveling, and it does not seem to always serve us very well. In fact, it typically exacerbates, increases our sense of stress. 
Now, just remember, while all of this is happening, your attention is actually along for the ride, right? Your attention is being utilized when you rewind the mind to ruminative thoughts. It's there in the past. It's working on those thoughts. It's focusing on those thoughts. That's where the flashlight is shining. Or if you're catastrophizing and, and worried or anxious about the future, your alerting system is now on high alert, you fully utilized for events that are imagined and may never occur. So in some sense, this mental time travel can exhaust and deplete the brain's attention system, all of its attention systems, all three, the flashlight, the caution sign, and the juggler. So now we have to think about this. We've got our attention system that can time travel as our mind chooses to. It's not always great for the mind to do this. And we're kind of hijacked out of the present moment. While the demands that we have to perform the duties we have, the, the tasks that we have to do are happening in the here and the now, right? That's all we have is the here and the now. So what I've been thinking about over these many years as a, as a brain scientist really is, what can we do about this? We've got this very strong tendency of mind to wander. We've got this intentionally depleting capacity of mental time travel. And we need to get out of this depleting context. So whereas a wandering mind may be the result of stress, so a stressed mind is a wandering mind, I would say that the opposite of that type of a mind is a mindful one. And this is actually exactly where mindfulness entered my laboratory's research. I wanted to figure out a way to get people out of that incessant rewind or fast forward. I wanted people to figure out, I wanted to figure out a way to train, help people train their minds so they could keep the button right on play and actually be able to hold attention steady in the present moment so that they could actually experience the unfolding of their lives and do so with their full cognitive capacities. And so the way that, just to kind of connect it to mindfulness, the way that I think about mindfulness, and that I think now the field, the, the very young field of what we call contemplative neuroscience talks about mindfulness, is as a form of brain training. And from my point of view, it's brain training for our attention system to protect it from these high stress inducing depletion scenarios of exhausting attention. So I think this is very important to keep in mind that mind wandering happens, but there is a way out. And unfortunately, it's not going to just happen by thinking about it. It's going to take some training. And that's what we'll talk about next.